The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, February 24th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the too little known story of the creation of the whooping cough vaccine, plus the remarkable initiatives in Taiwan that are helping keep the country clean with a little help from Beethoven, and a new Netflix docuseries that uses AI to recreate Andy Warhol's voice reading his diaries. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. In the 1930s, whooping cough, also known more formally as pertussis, killed up to 7,500 Americans every year, mostly small children. It was a horrific, pernicious disease that began in what seemed like a benign way, a runny nose, a mild cough, nothing to worry about. But by the time the cough became so intense that the patient was turning blue, spasming, and gasping for breath in the trademark heave that gives the disease its common name, it was almost too late. Even now, there's not much help that can be provided at that point. Survivors often face permanent physical or cognitive injuries in part from the loss of oxygen. But by the 1970s, annual deaths from pertussis had dropped to just 10, thanks to the pioneering work of two scientists who do not get nearly enough credit, Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldering. Kendrick and Eldering separately ended up working at a state-run lab in Grand Rapids, Michigan, after earning science degrees in New York and Montana, respectively. As Smithsonian describes it in a recent profile of the two women, educational opportunities for women in the 19-teens were expanding rapidly, but job opportunities were not. Getting an education was considered a nice and charming thing for a woman to do that would enhance her appeal and contentment as a future housewife. Maybe she'd teach for a little bit before finding a husband and having kids, but nothing more than that. Kendrick and Eldering both tried teaching but wanted more. One of the few other options for women at the time was in public health. With long hours, low pay, and few chances to earn accolades and status, not many men wanted to work in state-run labs, which made it unfortunately perfect for women. So Kendrick and Eldering ended up at that lab in Grand Rapids and, in the midst of a major outbreak of pertussis in the city, asked the lab's director if they could work on research for a vaccine for the disease. They got the all-clear, but not a huge vote of confidence. Quoting the Smithsonian, 
In the beginning, their main goal was to diagnose the disease faster and more accurately so contagious patients could be isolated as early as possible and return to school or work as soon as the contagious stage ended. Their weapon of choice was the cough plate, basically a petri dish with the culture medium painted on the bottom. The two women, along with doctors, nurses, and others on their team, would hold the open dish a few inches away while a patient coughed onto it. The dish, covered with a lid, then went back to the laboratory and into an incubator to grow the bacteria into colony suitable for analysis, end quote. It took a lot of work to confirm their first specimen of Bordetella pertussis, work largely done by Lonnie Clinton-Gordon, a black microbiologist on their team, but then seven weeks later, they had their first experimental version of a vaccine. Quoting again, coming up with a vaccine for any disease was still a rudimentary cooking without recipes enterprise. Researchers had to experiment with different methods of killing or weakening the pathogen to make it safe enough to inject into human patients, but still strong enough to elicit lasting immune resistance to the disease. In 1931, the American Medical Association declined to endorse any of the pertussis vaccines then available, concluding that they had absolutely no influence on prevention and were useless as remedies after onset of the illness. Kendrick and Eldering's vaccine consisted of whole-cell Bordetella bacteria killed with a common antiseptic, purified, sterilized, and suspended in a saline solution. Others who had developed vaccines before them often neglected to provide critical information on preparation, dosage, and other considerations, with the result that one batch could vary wildly from the next. Kendrick and Eldering took a far more systematic approach at every step, from the initial collection of bacteria through testing whether their vaccine actually protected children. They learned as they went, for instance, that bacteria collected at a certain stage were more likely to elicit a strong immune response, and they tested various iterations of the vaccine for safety by injecting them into experimental animals and themselves, end quote. Clinical trials were a new field at the time, and certainly not standardized, so the two spent a great deal of time after hours just designing how the trial would safely go forward. In the first round, they had nearly 1,600 children participants. About 700 received the vaccine, and about 800 were controls. In the end, the untreated control group had 63 cases of whooping cough, with most of them being serious. The vaccinated group had just four mild cases. It was pretty astonishing, and not too surprisingly, the male medical establishment didn't immediately believe the results. But after one renowned epidemiologist went out to investigate himself, he became impressed with Kendrick and Eldering's work and helped them improve their next clinical trial. As trials and improvements continued, they elicited more and more support, including from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and funding from the Works Progress Administration. By 1944, their vaccine was added to the list of the the American Medical Association's recommended immunizations, and cases were cut in half within the decade. But the work didn't stop there. In addition to traveling the world to introduce the vaccine to other countries, Kendrick and Eldering worked on a vaccine that would combine prevention of pertussis with tetanus and diphtheria, an early version of what would become the DPT vaccine. They also worked with the National Institutes of Health to standardize the method for testing the efficacy of every batch of the pertussis vaccine, helping vaccine production in general become more organized and replicable. The tendency of the predominantly white male folks who record our history to forget the contributions of women, as well as Kendrick and Eldering's humbleness and insistence that their staff played just as key a role as they did, all play a part in why many of us have never heard their names, why the vaccine wasn't named after them. 
But there is another reason, too. Quoting the Smithsonian, It has to do with the paradoxical nature of prevention. When a vaccine or some other healthcare measure prevents a disease, it leads people to forget the disease that it prevents. The vaccine itself can then become a target, because real or imagined adverse effects now suddenly seem worse than the disease. End quote. This is something we are all too familiar with now, as the anti-vaxxer movement swelled to bursting with the advent of COVID-19 vaccines. Those who question all vaccines, not just for COVID, are predominantly from a generation lucky enough not to remember the horrors of diseases like pertussis or polio. To them, the real and exaggerated or made-up side effects and risks seem worse than a hypothetical disease they may want to imagine themselves lucky enough to never get anyways. Jason shared an excellent video essay from Vox over on Kotke.org today that walks through how so many people ended up turning against the COVID-19 vaccine. It's pretty grim and deals more in politics than psychology, but it's still worth a watch if it's a topic you're interested in. But back to the remarkable work of Kendrick and Eldrain. Michael Decker, a pertussis specialist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, shared with Smithsonian Magazine, quote, What did Kendrick and Eldrain really do? They persevered in their belief that a successful vaccine could be made. They figured out how to make it. They engineered a clinical trial using novel techniques to prove their point. And in the face of intense criticism from people of high standing, they showed that their results were correct. They basically laid the pathway for modern pertussis vaccination, end quote. Or, as Kendrick would tell a reporter later in life, quote, I never thought there was anything I couldn't do. Taiwan is apparently crushing it at waste collection. There, their garbage and recycling trucks play classical music, usually for Elise or Maiden's prayers, and bring out crowds of people who socialize for a few minutes block party style while handing over their separated waste and recycling. Quoting the New York Times, It's all part of a decades-old waste management policy in Taiwan under which trash is not allowed to touch the ground. Officials insist that forcing people to hand-deliver their trash to the trucks, as opposed to wheeling out their bins for a later pickup or tossing the garbage into a dumpster, has been essential to the transformation of a place once nicknamed Garbage Island into a clean, largely litter-free society. The system has also fostered a sense of community in many neighborhoods, helping strengthen the civil society that undergirds Taiwan's vibrant democracy. End quote. And while the Times highlights lots of nice stories of people of all ages gathering to take out the trash together, you know, now married couples meeting while dumping their recycling bins, neighbors exchanging baked goods and leftovers, they also acknowledge that it's not perfect or completely ubiquitous. Fancier apartment buildings have their waste handled by building staff. Some folks haven't bought into the social and community side and just want to get rid of their trash in peace, and others struggle to make it home from work at the appointed time. Some say the music is too loud. And, of course, the pandemic made people keep their distance a bit more, physically and emotionally. This hand-deliver system is one of many measures implemented over the last few decades, after the litter in the streets hit a tipping point in the 90s. 
Another is a pay-as-you-throw system that orders residents to purchase blue government trash bags, basically creating a tax on how much garbage you produce. They also started issuing fines for littering and removed most of the public trash cans to reduce illegal dumping. It's all different ways to encourage a reduction of waste, but also make people more in touch with their waste and how much of it they produce. If you have to physically carry your garbage outside and dump it with all of your neighbors watching, you might think twice about what you're throwing away, whether you separated it into the right category, if you could have reused it, or if you should have bought it to begin with. And also, this might just be on me not knowing this, but this is one form of waste collection I hadn't heard of before. So in Taipei, in addition to general garbage, recycling for plastic, paper, glass, and metal, and compost for raw food scraps, they also collect cooked food waste for pig feed. I mean, I guess that wouldn't work in every location, but I'm very curious as to different forms of it that could. So many places in the U.S. are just barely dipping their toe into compost collection or community drop-offs, and there's a huge awareness effort that needs to happen there first. We recently got some new compost drop-off bins in New York City, and a lot of people were unsure what could go into them. But, man, both more compost and this cooked food waste for pig feed concept sound amazing to me. But why the classical music in the garbage trucks? The Times reports that the songs have become almost Pavlovian to some restaurants. I think of them almost like ice cream truck jingles, but potentially less annoying. The Times doesn't know why those songs got picked, but some people in Taiwan say that maybe they just came pre-programmed on the trucks they first used. The music is certainly beloved, though. According to the Times, when one town tried switching from Fur Elise and Maiden's Prayer to English language lessons, no one came out to throw away their garbage. Dang. Yang Chaomao, an official at the Environmental Protection Bureau in charge of sanitation work, says all of these measures have been incredibly successful, and as such, no matter how much some individuals might complain about the bother or the music, it's all here to stay. He told the Times, quote, There's no way we can go back. We need this system. End quote. Netflix released the trailer today for an upcoming Andy Warhol docuseries based on Warhol's book, The Andy Warhol Diaries. The book was published in 1987, almost two years after Warhol's death, and it consists of diaries that he spoke to his friend Pat Hackett over the phone every weekday morning for 11 years. Hackett would transcribe as Warhol spoke, and after Warhol's death, edited the entries into an 800-page book. The new six-part docuseries is executive produced by Ryan Murphy and directed by Andrew Rossi. It includes never-before-seen archival materials, ranging from Super 8 film to letters, poetry, and more. And it claims to touch on a much broader look at Warhol's life than most depictions, digging into some of the religious themes in his work, the nature of his sexuality, and some of his deeper thoughts that came out in the diaries but were usually kept more guarded in his lifetime. And given that the diaries were originally spoken, but not recorded, it's a nice touch that the docuseries will be narrated by Warhol himself. Sort of. Quoting Entertainment Weekly, 
In order to create the voice, Rossi tells Entertainment Weekly that he worked with the company Resemble AI to create a text-to-speech algorithm that would use Warhol's native Pittsburgh accent and cadence. Rossi then had actor Bill Irwin record the lines, and that performance was combined with the digital voice to come as close as possible to Warhol. Rossi continues, I felt that the AI voice would honor two hallmarks of Andy's life and artistic practice, stemming from his desire to be a machine. Andy admired the fact that machines have less problems, saying that I do have feelings, but I wish I didn't. He even had himself made into a robot and a hologram during his lifetime, and he said, the reason I'm painting this way is that I want to be a machine. So I thought that cloning Andy's voice could function like a Warholian portrait, and the Andy Warhol Foundation approved. End quote. Yeah, I do have to say, of anyone who would probably be okay with and fascinated by the recreation of their voice using AI, Warhol is high on the list. I think this will be a really interesting series at the very least. It debuts on Netflix March 9th, and the trailer is linked in the show notes. So, given today's events, Russia invading Ukraine, I wanted to address that and sort of lay out the extent to which I may or may not be discussing the situation as it continues. First and foremost, my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine. I'm linking to an excellent rundown from Global Citizen that breaks down the situation and also includes local aid organizations that you can support, local journalism to follow, peace protests to join, and more. And that said, I kind of echo what Jason said on Kotki.org this morning. There aren't hard and fast rules about what I share news-wise and what I don't on this show. You know, we started as a COVID news podcast, so developments in that direction usually seem like fair game, and that's a topic I feel like I have a decent grounding in from having co-written on the show in the early days. A lot of times I'm tempted to say that the point of this show, at least one point, is sharing hopeful stuff in the news. You know, that it's something most people listen to instead of the more downer news they're otherwise following. That it's maybe a distraction from tough realities. That I focus on things that remind you there are still good people out there, amazing innovations happening, that the world is still spinning. But I know that I regularly veer into more bummer news with the climate emergency or just my own existential crises about big tech, so I can't really use the this is a happy podcast excuse. What I can say is that I do not at all feel qualified to be reporting on this situation, and I do not want to accidentally spread misinformation. Now, I'm not saying I will never cover anything about what's going on, because unfortunately, at the very least, the effects of this will be ongoing. But mostly, when I do touch on it, I'll be sharing the reporting of more qualified individuals and institutions, as well as any resources that I come across as I personally follow the news. And in that vein, I've got a lot of links in the show notes today with some news coverage, some other emerging resources, an article myth-busting the fake photos and videos already being circulated, and a list of book recommendations. Because if you're someone like me who hasn't been paying attention to the political situation in Ukraine in recent years, it's a good idea to get caught up. So... Stay informed, help how you can, keep the people of Ukraine and surrounding countries and the citizens of Russia who, as Jason put it, quote, will bear the consequences for the actions of their leadership, end quote, keep them all in your thoughts. 
So that is it from me for today. Take a look at all the links that I've put in the show notes. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead, so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.